I don't know that much about detective work or law enforcement, but I have watched a lot of movies and TV shows on the subject. Now, whether it's an episode of Sherlock or some crime movie, there is often a familiar plot point, right? The criminal will return to the scene of the crime. Now, if you're like me, you sit and think, why in the world would anyone do that? It just doesn't make sense. Yet, I think if we are honest with ourselves, we are all prone to doing something like this. We, we struggle to reform our ways. We struggle to amend our lives. The famous statement from Proverbs 26.11 rings true over and over in our lives. Just as a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool return to his folly. We've all been in a situation where we have said to ourselves, why in the world did I do that again? What, what was I thinking? I know better than that. We're prone to go back to the scene of our sin. We can look down on others for doing it, but the truth is each and every one of us has done the same thing in our lives. We struggle to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. This isn't a shock for us. It's, it's part of our daily struggle to pursue holiness in the things of God. It comes down to the difficulty that we have actually believing the promises of God and trusting that what he has is better than that sinful thing that's in front of us. Will we pursue the things of God that are eternal or will we once again pursue the things of the flesh which are fleeting, which are temporary? Well, this is one of the themes that comes out of our text this morning as we drop into Genesis 20 today. It's been an interesting progression for us the last few weeks. We had the rescue of Lot from Sodom, then we had the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, then the shameful actions of the daughters of Lot. And now we have another passage that doesn't seem to advance the story of Abraham very well at all. Not only that, but it is very similar, as you may remember, to a passage we had several weeks ago when Abraham, well, then it was Abram and Sarai, but Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt, and he said the same thing. Tell them that I am your brother. The story is very similar. But it's my hope that we will see why this story is being told to us and how it moves us towards a, a better understanding of the story of redemption, that great story of our salvation that starts back in Genesis 3, showing us that there's a coming Messiah who will rescue us from our sin and who will crush the head of the serpent. But it's also interesting that we land at this point in Abraham's story this week because we're going to be taking a break from Genesis during Advent. And the next chapter that we're going to be looking at after Christmas is the birth of Isaac. Isaac, he's the one that we've been waiting for. We've been looking for this child of the promise for weeks. 
Isaac is that child. He is the one who will eventually lead the seed of the woman, lead, the seed, lead to the seed of the woman, giving birth to the Messiah who has been promised all the way back in Genesis 3. That one that I've already mentioned, that one who will crush the head of the serpent, the one who will save us from our sins. And so as we look at this passage today, we see some anticipation. Where is this promise? We, we read that Isaac was going to become, well, they didn't give that, well, they did give the name Isaac. We read that Isaac would be coming within a year. Is this going to happen? There's anticipation of the coming child of the promise. But now we're going to have to wait. Just as we wait for Jesus. Now, I didn't plan this out that we'd have this break waiting for Isaac while we were in Advent, but it works out very well. That happens sometimes, doesn't it? And so it's going to help us to feel the tension. As we feel the tension of waiting for Jesus, we're going to feel the tension of waiting for his ancestor, Isaac. Now, because of the break that Genesis has from the main storyline, this we were waiting on the child to promise. Isaac was coming, but then we had this detour into Lot's life. I want to remind us, as we come to this passage, I want to remind us of the tension that we're meant to feel in the text here as we read this story. Remember, God made this promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. But at turn after turn, the story comes up against snags, doesn't it? Abraham and his wife are old, really old, and she has been barren her entire life on top of it all. Abraham has, has tried to get this problem solved by having a child of his own, aside from God's plan, by having a child with his wife's handmaiden, but God keeps saying, no, the promise is going to come through Sarah. And what we're meant to feel as we read through these stories is that this is more than just a tough situation. As I've said many times as we've been in this part of Genesis, the story of Abraham and the story of Sarah is not a comeback story. We tend to think of it that way, but it's not. It's not a comeback story. It is a resurrection story. The womb of Sarah is dead, and it's going to require the intervention of God, the miraculous help of God for his promises to be fulfilled. What we're meant to feel here is that this promise is constantly in jeopardy. This promise will not happen. But instead, what we're seeing is that God's hand is upon Abraham and Sarah, and he will keep his covenant promise. And if we forget that important context, we aren't gonna understand this passage that we're in today and where it sits in the greater story and so with that reminder, we've established, let's get on to our three points for this week that are going to help us navigate this passage. The first thing that we're going to see today is that Abraham is a pilgrim. Now, remember part of the promise to Abraham is that not only is he going to have offspring, but his offspring is going to inhabit this promised land. But Abraham is in it now. He's there. This is the land he has promised. But what does Abraham do? He, he doesn't stay put. He's, he's moving. And the idea that is being expressed to us is, is how, in how this story is told 
is that Abraham hasn't arrived yet. He's in the land, but he hasn't arrived yet. He's waiting. He's still moving around. The child of the promised hasn't arrived yet, and neither has the promise of his people inhabiting and occupying the promised land. Abraham has been given a promise, but he's not there yet. He's looking for something greater. Secondly, we see that Abraham repeats a past deception. Once again, he tells a king that Sarah is his sister instead of his wife. And it's a half-truth, but it's still a deception meant to protect him. And it clearly shows that even though Abraham is faithful and he believes God, he still struggles. He still struggles with fully relying on God and trusting in his promise. And lastly, we see that despite Abraham's doubt and sin, God is still faithful to his covenant. Nothing, and I mean nothing, is going to stop God from keeping his covenant promise to his people. No human agents are going to mess up this plan. God is going to deliver the child of the promise and even Abraham. The necessary component in all this, even Abraham isn't going to thwart the plan and promise of God. And so with that groundwork laid, we arrive at the first part of the passage and our first point today. You see, you see it spelled out for us in this verse very clearly as we read it. Abraham is clearly a pilgrim. There are two words that give us this indication just in this one verse. He journeyed, he, sur- he sojourned. Now, we aren't given a reason for this. We, we don't know why exactly he's done this, but we can do some informed speculation. Abraham is powerful, and he has great wealth, and so his herds must have been quite substantial, and you need to move around to keep them fed. We also could speculate that perhaps the destruction of the area around Sodom and Gomorrah has laid waste to the food supply for their livestock. Remember, we ended up chapter 19 with Abraham surveying the damage of this destruction from a distance. Or maybe it's just too depressing to get up and to see this land that has experienced the wrath of God. We don't know, and maybe it's a little bit of all of them. But regardless of his reasoning, this is to help us to understand that Abraham has not yet arrived. The promise that he's waiting for is still far off. Abraham is in the land that is promised to him, but he's still a pilgrim. He's still sojourning because the promise is about so much more than just one child and one plot of land. Those were the promises in the short term, but the greater promise is the promise that there will be a Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent, who will come from Abraham's descendants. And so even when Abraham is in the land, and even after he will receive the child that he's been promised, he will still not have arrived. The promise will not have been fully fulfilled. Sin will still not be defeated. The head of the serpent will not yet be crushed. Instead, the child and the land are pointing. They're pointing forward to something greater. They are but a type They are but a shadow of what is really coming, what is really promised. 
And while Abraham is looking to his offspring inhabiting the land, we know from the book of Hebrews that what Abraham was looking for, truly looking for, was a promise that was far off. His hope was beyond what he could see with his physical eyes. He was looking for something that was in the distance. And so Abraham sojourns because he isn't home yet. And in this life, he still isn't going to arrive. He is looking for true rest, for final rest, because the child of the promise, Jesus, has come and saved him from his sin. That is what he is looking for. That is what he is trusting in. And we're going to see why that's so important, because in this life, Abraham is continually going to sin. Even though he believes God, he fails. And as we see in our second point, he continues to sin in unbelief. Now this is a big chunk of text, but it's a pretty simple story. And and we've seen that Abraham has done this before, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. For us, this just seems like a really weird story. Just, Just strange. Who would do this? And not only that, who would do it twice? Well, what's going on with Abraham? He has has power. And we've seen that he is like a king and he has a small kingdom. And there was always a threat of conflict in this area with those who were more powerful and they, they would want your people and they would want your possessions so part of that meant that when you were moving around, you were, you were constantly making treaties and alliances with other kings because there was always this threat of war. So you could either give over someone voluntarily or they could take from them, take someone from you by force. And so what is happening here is Abraham is clearly more concerned about his own neck than the safety of his wife. And we saw this similar scenario 20 years prior. In chapter 12, we we talked about how this showed that Abraham didn't really trust God to protect him. He didn't really trust God to keep his promise. But it also showed to us, when we looked at that, that, that this promise was going to be through Sarah. God not only protected Abraham, but he protected Sarah because the promise was going to come through her. And so what we feel here is not only was or back in chapter 12, that we felt not only that Sarah was barren and too old to conceive, but she was being taken into the harem of another man. And so, back in chapter 12, the tension we felt that 20 years prior, was God going to be able to keep his promise because Abram wasn't with his wife? Well, why does this story come up again? We went back and we we saw in this other story that the detour takes us, we had a detour that took us from the promise of Isaac and then we went to the life of Lot and now we're back to this. Well, this story is getting us back on the right road. It's helping us to remember that God made a promise that Sarah would conceive, that she would give birth within a year. So not only is this similar to the story from chapter 12? But now we have this added tension. If God's going to fulfill this promise, 
Isn't he going to activate Sarah's womb? And now he's in the harem of another man. Will she become pregnant by someone else? That's the tension we're meant to feel in the story, that Abraham just keeps on messing up the promise. So you see, one of the reasons that this story has made its way into this inspired text, we've seen it said that Abraham believes God. But does he? Does he? When the rubber meets the road, what does Abraham do? He rests not in God and in his promise, but in his own scheming. This terrible plan where he tells people that his wife is his sister. And it's as ridiculous as it sounds, right? And we don't fully understand their culture. But I would think that no matter when and where you live, you would understand that this this isn't going to work. But one lesson that we learn throughout Scripture is is that God works despite the unbelief and sin of his people. God intervenes, and he he does it in a very interesting way here, doesn't he? He inserts himself into the dream of a pagan king, and he informs him that he has taken the wife of another man. Now, I absolutely love how God begins speaking in this dream. He tells this king, you are a dead man. Now, you've probably only ever heard that in movies or maybe when you got in your brother's stuff when you were little, but that's strong words coming from God. If you hear this from the Almighty, you're going to take it seriously. You're a dead man. I'm sure that he was not very happy that this was happening, but I'm sure he was happy that he had not put a hand on Sarah. He hadn't been anywhere near her. And so what does he do? He makes the case that God shouldn't kill an innocent people. Notice what he says here. He's worried about his kingdom. He acknowledges that his sin is affecting more than just himself. It will affect his people. And you have to wonder if this statement isn't the reverberation of the judgment of Sodom in the area. Is he concerned that this God who has come to him This God who is saying that he has taken another man's wife, that he knows is sinful, does he understand that this is a God of judgment, that this is a God of wrath? Is he concerned that it won't just be him who's judged because of this? Is he concerned his people will be judged just as Sodom and Gomorrah were judged? But regardless, this this king makes a case, and, and he's right. He hasn't done anything. And God acknowledges that it was by his sovereign hand that he didn't touch Sarah. God protected Abimelech from judgment and protected Sarah from being impregnated by this pagan king. But God makes it clear that Abimelech needs to return Sarah to Abraham. And he uses an interesting reason. He says that Abraham is a prophet. And this is the first time we see this word in the Bible. We haven't seen it yet in Genesis. And Abraham is the first person in Scripture to be called a prophet. Now remember, to be called a prophet means that you primarily are declaring the word of the Lord. Now we think of prophets as as those who predict the future. But when we see the word 
prophet in the Bible, it means not only that they know the future, it means that they are a messenger of God's word. And so God calls Abraham a prophet because he speaks through Abraham. Abraham proclaims the word of the Lord. And so this lets Abimelech know that he needs to set Sarah free and not harm Abraham, even though he has deceived him. And so, so far, what we've seen in this text is that Abraham's a pilgrim, and he just can't seem to get things right because he repeats a deception from his past. And now we will see that God is faithful to keep his promise despite the reckless actions of Abraham. And what we see Abimelech do is, is baffling to us. You and I would call Abraham in and tell him to get out of our face and never come back, right? That's what we would do. You'd be like, God showed up in a dream and called me a dead man. Get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. But instead, what do we see? We see Abimelech giving gifts to Abraham, not only livestock, but also servants. He sees that Abraham has a special relationship to this God who is mighty and powerful, this God who has spoken to him in a dream. And so he honors that relationship that Abraham has with God by giving him these gifts. And even though Abraham has done him wrong, there's a clear agreement of peace between the two. And Abimelech goes even further. He gives a gift to indicate that she, Sarah, is innocent and that he hasn't wronged her in any way. And as a result, what does Abraham do? He prays to God on behalf of Abimelech. And we see an example of how Abraham acts as a prophet. We saw him call the prophet, and now he's doing something prophetic. He is interceding on the behalf of others. He's interceding on the behalf of Abimelech and his household. And what does God do? God opens the wombs of the house of Abimelech. And when Sarah was in the house Abimelech, of Abimelech, God closed their wombs, and now what is he doing? He's opening them and blessing them with children. And so what we're seeing and how this plays the story out is that God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. He keeps Abraham safe. He keeps Sarah safe. And we also see something very important to help us understand the rest of the story. He closed the womb of the women in Abimelech's household, and now he has opened them. And so if he can open the wombs of the house of Abimelech, what can he do for Sarah? God is going to be faithful. God is going to open the womb of Sarah and give the child of the promise. He is going to keep his promise. So this has been an interesting passage. It's very different. It's a repeat. And we can see how it fits in the story of redemption. But what can you and I take away from it and apply to our lives today? The first thing that we see is the importance of trusting God. Abraham returned to the deception that we saw in chapter 12. He went back to his sin. Now, while it may have preserved his life for a while, it separated Abraham from his wife and ultimately put the promise of God at risk. And while we don't 
You and I don't have a specific promise like God made to Abraham about children. God has made a promise to you and I in his word. He has told us who we are in him. We know that his law is good. And if we keep his law and we are in line with it, we will know his will for our lives because that is his will for our lives, to keep his law. And our sin and the repetition of it is outward proof that ultimately we don't really trust the promises of God. We don't really trust that his law is perfect. We don't really believe that his way is best. And one of the most difficult things for us is to pursue and to persist in holiness. It's hard. It's hard to trust God's promises because often the benefit of God's promise is not right in front of us. Often it is like Abraham. It is far off. And sin is appealing because it gives us what we want on our terms and we don't have to wait for it. We can have what we want now. We can have pleasure now. But what does God do? God calls us to trust him and believe that that even if the fulfillment of the promise to us is far off, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. So may we be a people. May we be a people that are pursuing God's will, that are pursuing God's law, and truly trusting in his promise as he has called us to do. And that brings us to our second application. Look to the promise of God. Where where did Abraham fail? He took his eye off the promise. And how do we know this? Because he allowed his wife to be taken from him. He was more concerned with his earthly prosperity and didn't remember that God said the promise was going to come through Sarah. But God was faithful. Despite Abraham's unfaithfulness, God was faithful. And despite our sin and despite our unbelief, God is faithful to us. He has given us the gift of faith and he promised to never leave us or forsake us. God in Christ took on human flesh, lived a perfect life for you, died for you, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father to secure the promise for you. Trust in that truth and look to his salvation and know that what is far off is much better than what is right in front of you. Because God did not bring Abraham that far to give up on him, did he? He made a promise, and he kept it. God did not go through all the effort of saving us, saving us to make a people for himself to abandon us. God has not abandoned us. Look to the cross. Look to his resurrection for you and know that God has not and will not abandon you. Trust in the truth that he gave us his Holy Spirit and through his word we are built up and conformed to the image of the Son. Look to the promise and know that God did not just give you salvation and abandon you. He is with you and he is at work in you right now as you hear the word and you hear the gospel proclaimed to you. And another promise 
that we look to. We are blessed to see this morning. God made a promise to Abraham that he would be a God to us and to our children. He made that promise to Abraham, yes, but it is clear when we read the book of Acts that that promise to be a God to us and to our children continues into the new covenant. And so we come to the baptismal font today, trusting that God's promise is for us and for our children. Now, we don't believe that there's anything magical about what we do today. But we come to the fount, trusting the promise of God, and trusting that as we proclaim the gospel, and as we proclaim the word to our children, God the Spirit will be at work in them, just as he is at work in us, working salvation and holiness in us for our good and to the glory of his holy name. So may we trust God and may we look to his promise knowing that God does not abandon us, but we have a sure promise of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.